1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books and East European Studies podcast series. I am your host, Amanda Swain. Today, we'll be talking with James Ward about his recent book, Priest, Politician, Collaborator Joseph Tiso and the Making of Fascist Slovakia, published by Cornell University Press. The book was the 2014 honorable mention for the Reginald Zelnick Book Prize in History from the Association for Slavic, East European, and Eurasian Studies. It is a fascinating look at Catholicism, nationalism, and changing moral standards in the 20th century. I enjoyed reading this book, and I look forward to hearing more about it today. So welcome to New Books in East European Studies, James. Thank you. Uh, you're welcome. <laughs> As a more detailed introduction, I wonder if you would tell us a bit about yourself and how you became interested in East European history.
0: Well, I had a, a very delayed entry into Eastern European history. I'd gotten my bachelor's back in 1985 in geography, and then I'd become a house painter, and um, I got involved in community theater in a small town in Kansas, Lawrence, Kansas, university town. And um, I, through that community theater, I met a Czechoslovak uh, scene designer named Jaroslav Malina, who was visiting in Lawrence, and I was getting ready to go travel through Europe for the first time. I was about 28 And he invited me to come see him in Czechoslovakia. So I did. And so I was in Czechoslovakia in 1987, about two years before, of course, the revolution. Got to see late socialist uh, uh, communism. And got very interested in Czechoslovakia. And then I went back to America and I started working in regional theater. Um, And worked there for, uh, I think, two or three years. Places like Hartford State, GL Repertory Theater, places like that. I was a technician. And when the revolution came, I applied for a, a... an English teaching job or an English teaching volunteer position in uh, Czechoslovakia through an organization called education for democracy. And I ended up, I thought I was going to go to Prague of course, like pretty much every American thought volunteering to teach English in Czechoslovakia. And I ended up on the Hungarian border in a town called Komarno, and taught English there for a year. And I ended up, um, getting very interested in, in Czechoslovak history. Um, and, um, Along the way there, I decided. Well, basically, I taught English for seven years abroad: uh, five years in the Czech and Slovak Republics, two years in Thailand. And at the end of that period, I decided to go back to school and uh, get a degree in history.
1: <laughs> that is a really interesting path to a PhD in history. Yeah, it was. And, a um, one. yeah, it, but it just shows that uh, it doesn't. There's no one single path to becoming a, a scholar and an academic. So that's how you became interested in Czechoslovak history how what specifically led you to write a book about Joseph Tiso
0: well um, when I first got to uh, Czechoslovakia it was still Czechoslovakia this was in fall 1992 and of course it split in um, uh, the, the January 1st 1993 and uh, uh, this was at probably the height of the the Czechoslovak discussion about rehabilitating Tiso. I should probably say the Slovak discussion about rehabilitating Tiso. There was a, there was a very big push to rehabilitate him, and I'll be honest. Initially, I got I'd never heard of Josotisa Tiso before in my life, but I really disliked the people that were promoting this rehabilitation. Uh, they were ultra-nationalists, uh, people like Jan Slota and Slovak Nationalist Party uh, in um, uh, Slovak National Party in in Slovakia, and uh, it was a kind of an odd. Kind of an odd moment, but – so I, I started to figure out who Yosef Tiso was and started getting kind of interested in him. And uh, when the country split, uh, my partner and I uh, at the time um, – her name was Dina Daniel. I just want to mention her name because she was a big supporter of the book all the way through, and I'm really grateful for all the help she gave me over the years. Uh, but we were in um, Nuremberg. Uh, we'd, we'd kind of taken Christmas break and gone into uh, Germany, and we're walking around an art museum in Nuremberg. And at the time, I was thinking about returning uh, to school to get a master's. And I kind of turned to her at one point and says, "You know, I think I'll go back in an MA in history and write a write a uh, biography of Joseph Tiso as my MA thesis." And I was uh, totally naive. I thought I was going to like do research in five places for an MA thesis, et cetera. But that was that was the start of the idea. I just kind of one day decided I'd write a biography about Tiso, and I can't <laughs> I can't really explain why. I said. that. And then that, uh, that just kind of uh, fermentated now for the next, uh, I think it's the next six years. And um, then when I finally decided back, I think it was in 98, that I'd actually do it. And so then I really started investigating how to go about doing it. And um, at the time I was in Thailand when I started applying to grad schools. And I was very fortunate in the sense that I, I, had, I was going to apply to my old uh, school where I got my BA, University of Kansas. And I also applied at Central European University. Uh, but I needed a third school to put on my G.R.A. or G.R.E. application. That's that's right, yeah, G.R.E. Um, And so I asked my buddy at the time, uh, what was the third school I could put on the the application? He said, well, you know, University of Seattle or University of Washington. I'm from Seattle, you could do that one. And I knew nothing about the University of Washington, but I went ahead and put it on the application. And um, uh, because of that, I ended up, for some reason I ended up applying to the University of Washington. And lo and behold, um, I think I applied just because I had sent my GRE score there. And lo and behold, there was a Slovak scholar named James Filak, who then took a very strong interest in cultivating me and um, bringing me along uh, as a historian. And so I ended up meeting him in, um, in Bratislava. And, and by that time, I had started doing um, some, some research on, on Tiso Because what happens, I went to Thailand for two years and I came back to Bratislava for one year. And that's when I met Filak. And I remember walking down the street with him uh, one day, and I said something along the lines of – I felt like I'd kind of answered my questions about TISO. And I said, I'm not sure I want to become you know, the, the American expert on TISO. And he said, well, if you don't do it, I will. And I thought, well, if this is something he would like to do, maybe it's a good idea to go ahead and follow through with this. So that's the long route, too, to how I got to um, working on TISO. So I had the dissertation – Actually, when I went back, I thought I was just going to do a master's degree and be done in two years, and then it turned into the Ph.D., but that's how I came to the topic of TESO, and I actually went back to school in a way uh, so I could do uh, the TSO project.
1: Great. Well, and you certainly did it um, very well, as already um, stated that you received the Booker Prize. Uh, an honorable a, mention, yeah. <laughs> yeah, still, but still a very prestigious honorable mention. Yeah, thank you. Well, you made the choice to write this book as a chronological biography rather than approaching Tiso's life thematically. Yeah. What did the chronological structure reveal about Tiso and the time periods in which he lived that you wanted to get at?
0: Well, um, the chronology, uh, again, I have to thank mentors for making wise decisions for me. My my mentor at Stanford was... Uh, Norman Namark, and am uh, not a typical graduate student, but kind of a typical graduate student move, I wanted to shake things up, and so I wanted to start with the historiography and kind of work backwards through Tiso's life, and, and Norman you, he shook his head and said, no, <laughs> you know, we like stories that start at the beginning and end at the end, and I wasn't too excited about that, but I thought, well, that would be a good way to work through it, and maybe I could shake it up later, uh, and, and, you know, what I learned from working with chronology is chronology is a historian's friend. Uh, you know, the whole, the whole, the whole ball game is really getting all those sources in order and working through them in order and trying to forget what comes next. And so there, there were some big surprises for me, uh, at least working through, uh, TESEL chronologically. I had, in my earlier research, I had known about his, uh, very intense, uh, period of anti-Semitism in 1918 and 1919. Cause I, worked up an article on the newspaper that he had published in a small town called Nitra uh, during the the revolution for the first Czechoslovak Republic. And again, very, very strong anti-Semitism. But what surprised me was just how little anti-Semitism there was before that episode and how little after it, up until 1938. Um, He really, uh, especially after um, 1920, he really just Moved away from political anti Semitism. He hardly ever, ever used it. Uh, one of the most striking moments for me was um, at the uh, 20th anniversary for the uh, Pittsburgh Agreement. The Pittsburgh Agreement, a little background here Pittsburgh Agreement was an agreement uh, negotiated between um, immigrant Czech and Slovak groups that had. Uh, kind of projected a blueprint for Czechoslovakia. And Masaryk, who becomes the president of the first Czechoslovak Republic, uh, he witnesses it. It was kind of his brainchild. He witnessed it, but he didn't, didn't sign it as an agreeing par- party. And the, the, the Pittsburgh agreement called for things like an independent parliament in Slovakia, things like that. And on uh, the 20th anniversary of the uh, Pittsburgh agreement, they got the American Slovaks to bring it to Bratislava, and they had a huge uh, rally. Uh, in support of uh, pushing for autonomy. That was always Tiso's big issue, right, getting autonomy for Slovakia. That was the issue of his party, the Slovak People's Party, where they were known the Ludaks. And uh, in his speech at uh, the um, at the Jubilee rally, and this is during a time when anti-Semitism is, is really starting to increase in Czechoslovakia, radicals within his own party pushing it forward, uh, a year before, uh, a young radical in the party named Carol Sidor, he'd actually called for the deportation of Jews to uh, uh, the, uh the Jewish autonomous district in the Soviet Union. And in that speech, Tisa at one point starts talking so – let me see if I can remember correctly. Uh, he starts talking about um, getting even with national enemies, and he starts kind of listing through groups that they're going to settle with. And an audience member has to cry out, and the Jews uh, Tiso doesn't use it, and then, once he's in power, within just a matter of weeks, he orders the first deportations of Jews, uh, one of the first deportations of Jews in europe uh, seventy five hundred Jews that were deported to southern Slovakia right before it's going to be handed over to Hungary in an episode called the First Vienna Award, which was uh, redrawing of borders after the Munich Agreement, which had also resulted in drawing of borders. And that was, that, was a, that was a big surprise for me, how tenaciously he had avoided um, political anti-Semitism between 1920 and 1938 and how quickly he re-embraced it. And, uh, and so what I saw was um, really t- kind of – if you wanted to periodize his life, what you saw was these alternating periods of normal and what I call revolutionary time. Revolutionary time being 1918 uh, and 1919. 19. Uh, and also 1938 and 1947. And his practices, especially toward Jews, changed very radically in revolutionary time. He felt this need to purge them uh, from the body politic. He identified them with the revolution, uh, uh, with capitalism, that's worse. The, the typical uh, associations, etc. They're the foreign body that has to be kind of cast out. Whereas in in the interwar period, he, he gets close to actually calling Jews Slovaks. He gets close to it. Um, and, he, and, it, and his theology changed, too, because in the interwar period, he talks that you have to have a balance between love of neighbor and love of self. And If you don't have that balance, if you lose that balance, then you create this abomination called fascism. But in the revolutionary time periods, he argues that love of self is prior to love of nation. And so you must love yourself first, and because you love yourself first, you remove enemies that threaten you. And so love of self becomes a justification for purging Jews. Um, so that was really interesting—the uh, the the way it alternated, and and just uh, how how tenaciously he held on to those interwar uh, practices where he had really purged political anti-Semitism from his vocabulary. Mm-hmm.
1: And that chronological time period, I think, does as a reader also help to see that um, that change over time, and 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 as you described it, that the differences between his response or to uh, the events that were happening around him, as well as uh, the the things that he was trying to initiate himself.
0: Yeah, one of the important and, things that comes out in chronology too is the changing geopolitical context for. His life, you know, he starts out in the Kingdom of Hungary. He ends up in Ch- first Czechoslovak Republic, turns into the second Czechoslovak Republic with an autonomous Slovakia, turns into an independent Slovakia, turns into the uh, post-war Czechoslovak Republic. Um, you know, it's uh, those those changing uh, state formations had a huge impact on his life, and and. Profoundly reshaped his personalities at times. You know, before 1918, he was understood – he was understood by most people as a Majar, With that, Majar of course, is the Hungarian word for Hungarian. But in 1918, Majar didn't carry that strong of an ethnic connotation. Uh, for example, they saw him as a Slovak-speaking Majar, Or if they knew he spoke Slovak. He was fluent in Hungarian, though, so most people just thought he was a Hungarian-speaking Majar. And he transforms overnight into a Slovak nationalist, and it's a shock to the people in Nitra. They, they, they didn't expect that at all.
1: Talk to us more about Tiso um, in the kingdom of Hungary. So he grows up in Habsburg, yeah. Hungary, at the end of the 19th century. And as you've just described, he was a Magyar. And his ability to, um, in a sense, assimilate um, into Hungarian society sets up something that you talk about throughout his life. This sort of this idea of collaboration. So talk to us more about his role in um, the Kingdom of Hungary well, you in know, his life. Uh,
0: he was born in a town called uh, 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 Bicha, Velka Bicha in Slovak. It was Bice uh, in uh, Hungarian, and um, he was uh, his parents were um, typically. Uh, characterized as Slovak speakers, uh, the the documentation on them, um, the documentation I had on them was contradictory. Sometimes they say they spoke Hungarian okay. Sometimes they said they didn't speak Hungarian at all. But they clearly, were Slovak speakers. They were Catholics, and this was from a, a Slovak area uh, in uh, in Hungary, northern Slovakia, up near a town called Žilina. And um, he was a very good student, um, very successful. He became uh, basically the uh, 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 the family's uh, premier student, uh, and uh, by the time he um, was uh, in his teens, he was in a seminary down in Nitra, uh, as a, they had something called the, the the little seminary, which was for boys that would then move on and, and move on into a, uh, a grand seminary, which would be for a priest. Okay. And um, he, uh, again, he was he was very very successful in school. He was polyglot. Um, he. Fluent in, in Hungarian, in German, very, very – probably fluent in Latin if you can be fluent in a dead language in <laughs> the turn of the century. But he would do all his correspondence, of course, in Latin uh, to uh, – depending on the particular purpose of the document, he corresponded a lot in Latin. And he had he – he, he would write his name in four different versions. Um, he had a Slovak version, a Hungarian version, a German version, and a Latin version. And depending on who he was introducing himself to, he would use one of those names. Um, he uh, uh, he didn't um, hide his Slovak um, uh, his Slovak uh, heritage. Uh, this was uh, actually a plus in in the church uh, because that made he, meant he could preach to Slovak um, um, uh, Slovak congregations and connect with them. And so, for example, the very first mass he gave, uh, he handed out cards in Slovak, and it was uh, no doubt a Slovak mass. But he was very tight with uh, uh, what's called a majoron. Uh, priest in uh, Biccia. Magyarón is a, a Slovak who has assimilated to Hungarian culture. A very controversial term because nationalists uh, uh, interpret it as uh, renegades or traitors. There are people that hate Slovaks and have gone over to Hungarians. But in the period documentation, it's it's oftentimes simply, you've assimilated. You've assimilated to Hungarian culture. You're, you're a Slovak that's not, as they would say, a pan-Slav or a Slavic nationalist. And, and Tisa was always very clearly Distance from the Pan-Slavs, um, always understood as close with the Majorone priest in his town, etc. And uh, he was very, very successful after, after being in the, the little seminary and in Gymnasium or High School. in Nitra, he was picked as the only uh, pupil from the diocese to attend the Pasmanian in Vienna, which was a Hungarian uh, dormitory uh, for seminary students at the University of Vienna. And this was a very, very high honor. And he excelled in the Pasmonium. He was at the top of his class. He became the, uh, uh, basically the, the senior uh, student, uh, a student official in the entire uh, seminary, uh, very, very uh, prized by his teachers. There were some charges of him getting involved with Slovak nationalism. Um, In his seminary years, but he successfully deflected those charges, convinced the authorities that he understood the Slovak nationalism was dangerous and that he had no truck with it. And uh, then graduated in 1910. He had uh, moved around different districts in different towns in northern Slovakia where it would appear he was awakening as a Slovak nationalist. Uh, Again, always within the bounds of what could be done at the time without getting into serious trouble uh, with your bishop. And uh, he also did um, some uh, frontline service during World War One. very brief stint at uh, the front, but saw some very, very bloody, uh, devastating fighting. And um, fundamentally, he got himself out of the army. Uh, he, he pulled strings with his bishop. He, he sucked up to uh, – uh, you know, um, Hungarian officials. He started publishing a, uh, a, a diary in in a local newspaper that was very patriotic about the Hungarian cause. You know, kind of building up his worth, and he got himself out of the um, the front line service first by getting sick. I, I don't I don't mean to say he wasn't really sick, but he what he did was when he came back, he got he got a, a form of nephritis, and when he came back, he went through a cure, and then he talked. Um, the officials into putting him on kind of permanent health leave, and then this is in uh, spring 1915. He's only he's only on the front a very very short time, and then uh, in August I believe, if I remember correctly, they re uh, they redeployed him to Slovenia, and he was only there a couple of weeks. He he just uh, uh, kicked and fought till they pulled him out of that, and then he was made a senior uh, parish official called uh, the spiritual director, the spiritual who was in charge of training priests at the Nitra seminary. So the Nitra bishop pulls him out of the army and gets him reappointed uh, to a uh, position there. And he had other positions. And so through most of the war, he's in Nitra working as a journalist and and training priests. He doesn't have his own parish. And that's where he is when the revolution happens in 1918. And he suddenly, very suddenly, uh, reoriented himself to a uh, Czechoslovak. Uh, policy and came out as came out in public as a as a conscious nationalist slogan
1: wow so before we move on to that i just wanted to talk with you briefly about uh, tiso as a catholic priest Uh and how did catholicism shape him and what features defined his catholicism
0: well well i mean catholicism defined him in many ways i mean he was a product of catholic institutions uh you know way on you know his, his his grandfather was uh um in in charge of taking care of the local uh, church and he was always helping his granddad out and he was he was he was he was pegged for a, a clerical career very quickly that was a very attractive career in uh, northern hungary uh, at this time um tisos catholicism he was a pretty conservative catholic he he hung on to uh, he resisted, for example, attempts to uh, uh, get rid of, a, of um, celibacy. Um, he uh, didn't like the idea of electing a bishop, so he, he was he was not part of the progressive stream of, of clerics in Czechoslovakia. Um, but um, he's also, you know, I, I looked into some of the the texts or the texts that were very important to him, things like uh, uh, Saint Thomas Aquinas's uh, uh, Summa Theologica. Uh, which, uh, you know, he said that was his guidebook to sociology and to politics, etc. And uh, he knew that text very, very well. Also, the imitation of Christ very, very important to him. And so he was interested in uh, the idea of ascetics. Um, He thought uh, that, you know, priests needed to kind of be trained as spiritual experts and to focus uh, very intensely uh, on themselves as, as, again, kind of a... Uh, experts on catholicism almost almost kind of like a vanguard party of catholic priests that are going to kind of lead people into i'd never thought of it in those terms until now but now that i think about it he did always kind of think of the the catholic the, the the priesthood as a vanguard that leads the people to christ and um and he was also he was very big on on, on priestly unity uh on catholic discipline um, the um, uh, Spiritual Exercises, another very important uh, uh, text for him, and, and he, he took the, the, uh, the uh, um, suggestions about Catholic uh, discipline very, very seriously. He, he was interested in militant Catholicism, of, of really trying to roll back the Enlightenment's control of the public sphere to re-Catholicize the public sphere, etc. Very, very um, fervent uh, activist priest. Always doing something, always. And, 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 and as far as I can tell, deeply loved by his uh, parishioners, deeply respected. Um, and um, um, I'm trying to think what else to tell you about Tiso's Catholicism. So the thing with Tiso's Catholicism is so much of the writing that we have available, uh, when he's really writing in terms of theology, he's mainly focusing on how to train priests. Uh, he's very interested in pastoral theology. Um, and, you know, the training priests in reaching the faithful, he, he doesn't spend a lot of time, um, digging into questions of how do we know God exists or, or things like that. And, um, we don't have his sermons. We just have a few that he's published as articles. So I never had a chance really to go through his sermons, but, uh, there, there's no question that he was uh, deeply inspired by Catholicism and he was, he was, uh, he shared, uh, the Catholic view at the time of Catholicism being a kind of a life and death struggle with progressivism with secularism, and uh, that the church was under attack. That you needed to defend the church. That you needed to defend the Catholic way of the Catholic way of life. And he also felt uh, he disagreed that that religion was a private affair. It should be a public affair. It should infuse uh, uh, the government and direct the government. Um, so um, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm babbling here. It's getting close to what you want.
1: Well, yeah, and actually it leads into the next question I have is that you write that Tiso went into politics to defend Catholicism. So can you explain that move and what it reveals about Catholicism and concepts of progress and modern in the early 20th century?
0: Yeah, no, it's, a, it's, it's interesting. You know, um, he definitely went into, he went into uh, politics. Uh, you could make a case that he did it to defend the church. You can make a case that he did it to defend the priesthood. Uh, but in Tiso's mind, I'm not sure there's a lot of distinction between those two. The priesthood is the most important element of the church. Uh, but he was very bothered by um, uh, secular attacks on the priesthood. Another important aspect here, though, is that um, he's not in a good position to um, to prosper as a own priest. In a place like Nitra, Nitra fell to Czechoslovakia. Um, The Czechoslovak authorities are going through purging Magyar priests they don't trust. And so uh, part of his very dramatic uh, reconfiguration as a Slovak nationalist is tied with the fact that that's the route forward for his clerical career. Uh, He's going to need to to prove his uh, Slovak credentials if he's going to continue to climb the hierarchy. Because by the time 1918 comes, Tiso's on the short list to make bishop. In Nitra. He's, he's considered a, a, a prime contender uh, for bishop, and a lot of people think he's going to turn into a bishop. Well, that all will turn to ashes if Tiso is understood after 1918 as a Hungarian. So very important for him to, to prove his Slovak credentials. And one of the ways you can do that is go into politics and start fighting for Slovak nationalist politics. Uh, uh, so that's So we we want to kind of temper the extent to which he goes into it for the church. But having said that, I think that was his primary motive. He was very, very scared of socialism, of Bolshevism, of liberalism, uh, the secularization of the public sphere, very scared of of, uh, uh, secular school systems. Um, and, uh, he felt that if you had a secular school system that it's all over, the kids are lost, the church will die, the, the, the dog is dead, you know, the, everything falls down. And of course he's, he's living in, in Hungary during the 1919 Kun invasion, where there is a very, uh, a short, a very brief, but intense attack on organized religion, uh, an attempt to wipe it completely out. So that's one of the contexts he has also the Bolshevik revolution in Russia, um, so he joins um, the Slovak People's Party, which is a clerical party founded by Andrei Hlinka. This was its second, I think, second or third reincarnation. I can't remember. It's been a long time since I wrote the book. <laughs> and uh, uh, So he joins that uh, because he sees that as the best way to defend the church. And, of course, as Czechoslovakia progresses, there's more and more indications that the state is going to be uh, by progresses, I mean as it becomes clear and clear what Czechoslovakia is going to be. It becomes clear and clear that there are some very strong anti-clerical streams in Czechoslovak politics. Um, uh, you know, for example, they uh, during the revolution they pulled down a Marian column. You know, a statue with the Virgin Mary on top of it, which was associated with Habsburg oppression. They pull it down. Well, for Tiso, the Habsburg oppression is not the issue. You're you're pulling down images of the Virgin Mary. And, and and also you're starting to uh, you're starting to, to make the schools secular. You're purging them of, of priestly control, and that was a huge issue for him. So he goes into politics to confront those issues first and foremost.
1: And and yet you describe his interwar political activities as a failure overall. So. To what, what level did he reach in interwar politics, and why were those activities in the end unable to accomplish what he wanted to accomplish?
0: Well, one thing that happens to Tiso is he's subversively secularized. <laughs> it's, it's one of the most interesting stories in his life. And this, this really happens pretty much to, uh, I, I won't go so bold as to say all Catholic politicians, but there's, there's, a, uh, there's kind of a logic to Catholic politics that, that moves people towards secularization. Uh, you form a party. You start participating in mass democracy because you want to defend the church. Well, the only way you can defend the church is if you get elected into positions of power. To get elected into positions of power, you need to uh, campaign on nationalist politics uh, because Catholic politics does not does not uh, uh, what's the word I'm trying to say here? It doesn't compete. Get the votes. Yeah, then. it doesn't get the votes. So this is what the LUDAX learned in their first election. If they if they build their entire platform around defending the church, they lose. Uh, If they build it around defending the Slovak nation, then they do much better. Now, Tiso had the misfortune of – I shouldn't say misfortune. It was also his fortune, but he uh, wed himself to the the Catholic People's Party. And the Catholic People's Party, within a short period of time, it took about – I'd say about six, seven months, they became aware of the Pittsburgh Agreement, which had basically promised – Slovakia autonomy, and they make that their program that they're going to get autonomy within Czechoslovakia. So they want Slovak government, Slovak administration, Slovak parliament, Slovak courts, etc., Slovak as the language of administration, etc. And for 20 years, they pushed that program. Uh, the problem here is that. Uh, The Ludaks, they were the largest party in Slovakia, but they they, they represented like 7 percent. Again, I'm pulling numbers out of the air. It's been a long time since I wrote the book, but they represented like 7 percent of the Czechoslovak population. And uh, Czechoslovakia was dominated by centralist parties uh, who were not interested in creating autonomy for Slovakia because then they might have to create autonomy for the three million Germans in the Sudetenland, which could then make the entire state unworkable. And so they're constantly – um, they're constantly um, uh, rejecting Slovak plans for autonomy, and uh, the problem here is that the uh, the, the Ludaks, they could never find a party that would really be able to work with them to achieve that end. They're always kind of the odd man out in Czechoslovak, Czechoslovak politics. Now Tiso, uh, at a certain point, he decides that the way to autonomy is from the inside to work with. Uh, the Czechoslovaks. And this goes back to this argument about lifelong patterns of collaboration. You know, he worked with Hungarians, and now he's going to work with Czechs and Czechoslovaks to try to achieve things rather than just bang his head against the wall in futile resistance. And he's critical for bringing the party into the government between 1927 and 1929. He becomes the Minister of uh, Health and Physical Education. uh, I think is what it's called. And uh, um, so you have uh, two uh, Ludak ministers in a government uh, for, I think it's two governments, actually, uh, between 1927 and 1929. And this is his attempt to integrate the LUDACs into uh, the Czechoslovak political system, make them a government party, and that way build up trust and eventually win autonomy. Uh, problem is that is then sabotaged both by the centralist parties, uh, especially, uh, for example, uh, President Masaryk's uh, uh, power center which is called the castle they 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 have some skullduggery going on to to sabotage this and they're helped out by the fact that the ludax have a a traitor to czechoslovakia in their ranks man named uh, Wojtek Tuka, who is a paid hungarian agent and uh, who is uh, uh, really stirring up a lot of trouble for example publishing a big article on new year's day i think it's 1928 where he says that there was a secret there was a secret clause to one of these early declarations that created Czechoslovakia that says if we don't have autonomy in two years, then the whole state is null and void. And he gets put on trial for treason, and in one of these ironies – of course, he's guilty of sin, but they don't have they don't have the evidence because they got most of the evidence illegally through uh, uh, things like spying. So they, they – they, they they to an extent, they frame him uh, on this charge, and that then embitters the Ludax who see just the framing – uh, and uh, Tiso, for example, he hated Tuka and he was uh, uh, he was glad uh, i, I won 't say he was glad to see him to go to jail, but he 's glad to see him neutralized in the party and out of the party but th- these sort of things what happens is you just end up in this 20 year stalemate where Tiso can never push through his politics, which he called activism within Czechoslovak politics. Activism was a pro government policy, whereas negativism was you opposed uh, the state opposed. Uh, uh, the government. And he's constantly trying to um, get the Ludacs to collaborate well with the centralist parties so that they can move closer to uh, autonomy. He's always favoring a kind of a gradualist approach. But Ludac politics and the uh, inability to find partners, he always ends up being pushed back into opposition, ends up in the end getting autonomy by exploiting the Munich Agreement and pushing it through over people's heads in a very non activist uh, moment, and so yeah, this was this was a failure for him because what he ended up with, he got autonomy in 1938 by exploiting uh, the the uh, very um, the damage from uh, the Munich Agreement, and he was he was also doing things like negotiating with Hungary about whether they could go into Hungary and negotiating with Poland. I mean, he's doing a lot of things behind the backs of people, uh, but um, so he gets autonomy, but the Czechoslovak Republic is fatally damaged and cannot provide security uh, to Slovakia. and So it's going to break up in 39. He's going to end up under uh, German hegemony, which is not something he wanted.
1: And yet here, uh, in some ways, it is a dual-edged sword in that – Slovakia becomes independent but it becomes independent as a nazi client yes. state yeah. talk to us more about tiso's role in that and his position um in this new independent Slovakia
0: well tiso's course always kind of looking for the best deal he can get at any given time and um that's why he's for example negotiating with poland and negotiating with hungary at the same time he's negotiating with Prague during the munich crisis and uh uh, he's even he's even engaged with the centralist parties in discussions. Right as soon as they as soon as they learn the Munich Agreement, they break off the discussions and decide we can go for the maximum now. We can push for total autonomy because uh, these guys have have lost. And so he's always looking for the best deal. And in um, in the fall of of 1938, uh, at this point Germany is thinking that they would rather have a rump Czechoslovakia than an independent Slovakia. And at that point, he aligns his. Politics with that pretty well. He starts cracking down on radical separatists who are trying to, uh, you know, uh, push for independence. Uh, he starts working pretty well with the Czech government, but it's it's always you know, a touch and go. And uh, as 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 events radicalize, Tiso starts radicalizing with them. And so leading up to uh, March. 14th 1939 which is when the state is declared independence tiso is playing both sides it's very hard you know he's not committing to a continued czechoslovakia he's not committing to uh an independent slovakia but he's got his feelers out in both ways he's like sending trade negotiations a uh, trade uh, negotiating teams to berlin to discuss that you know, with the german authorities he's having contact with german authorities that are pushing him to have independence at the same time he's urging the Czechs to cut him a better deal so he can tamp down the uh separatism in his state etc and he's dealing with all sorts of problems like budget crisis and he's lost huge chunks of territories through the territory revisions that came after the munich agreement like the first vienna award it's it's chaotic it's 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 an insane period to try to lead any kind of country he has no well he has experience in government but his his uh his party has never led a um a province or, or, or uh, this time slovakia is a province an autonomous province they've never had experience doing that he has some serious neophytes uh in the government like ferdinand Durchansky, the, the young foreign minister that he chose also a radical and so Tiso gets kind of hammered between um the radical you know the young radicals within the party that want independence uh nazi germany that's pushing him for independence um and um and also, but he's, he's, he's also up against conservatives inside uh, the party, inside the regime that realize that a small Slovakia is going to be very, very vulnerable. That uh, Czechoslovakia, for all of its secular sins, it provided uh, stability, it provided security for uh, for Slovaks. And to make a long story short, um, what happens is uh, Tiso gets fired as the prime minister. And uh, I think March 10th, the start of a crisis in Czechoslovakia is the Prague government tries to assert control over uh, Slovakia because tiso's allowing too much separatism, act, separatist activity to go on. And uh, he 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 does he stirs up a little bit of trouble and then he withdraws to his parish and says, I'm done. I'm out of politics. It's it's other people's problems. And his young radical Carol Sidor takes over and the Germans pressure Sidor to declare independence. And Sidor had a lot of faults, but being pushed around was not one of them. And Sidor refused to declare independence. And then the Germans turned back to Tissot, and then Tissot works very carefully to like get approval from the party and the government to go to Germany to meet Hitler because they invite him to come see um, Hitler in, in Berlin. And then when he gets to Berlin, he um, uh, he on the surface behaves very, very um proper. You know, he doesn't make any declarations. He says, I've got to consult the Slovak Parliament. Uh, he calls the president of Czechoslovakia, Emil Haka, and tells him what's going on, etc. He, he behaves very, very above board. Uh privately he goes into secret meetings with the with the Germans, starts uh negotiating what exactly independence would be like, what sort of things would they get, doing it without any authorization from anybody. He's he's not a government when he's in when he's in Berlin, he's not uh, he has no other function more than being a government. His, his mission has been approved by his party to go see what Hitler has to say. He has no official function. And him and Durkhovsky, and Durkhovsky is actually in exile at the time he, he is picked up in Vienna and flown with, with uh, Tiso to Berlin because he's fled to the other side. There's an arrest warrant out for him, uh, the, the Czechs that want to arrest him. So both of these guys have no official capacity uh, to negotiate anything. And they do. They they go into overnight negotiations. Uh, Tiso comes back. He gives a speech in which he uh, very very cl- cleverly, and this was typical Tiso behavior. He positions himself to be simply the messenger. Right. This is what Hitler has said, and what Hitler has said is he said declare independence. or I'm going to let Hungary and Poland and, and Germany will get into. We'll just partition you. Uh, that's that's the thrust. Uh, the the subtext of of his discussion uh, with Tiso. And so he relates this all, very, very skillfully done, and gets the parliament to declare independence. And everybody stands up and says, yes, we're for independence. And that's how the Slovak state became independent. And from day one, um, it's 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 under pretty heavy German domination from day one.
1: And Tiso is known historically, um, perhaps most uh, well-known, as being a Nazi collaborator. Yeah. But in the book, you do demonstrate this quote unquote pattern of collaboration where Tiso is is often adapting himself to the powers that be in order to to achieve his goals, whether they are personal goals or um, uh, larger social goals or
0: Catholic goals or Catholic Very goals, Catholic goals.
1: So how does that pattern of behavior uh, that you've demonstrated in the book contextualize for us his collaboration with the Nazi regime? And then what were the consequences for him of that collaboration in terms of his own position in Slovakia and and how he was trying to continue to make something of Slovakia and a, a Catholic society?
0: Well, I think... Well, that's kind of a tough question. I think, first off, it shows that collaboration for Tiso was probably less ideologically driven uh, than we had thought before. This is pragmatic politics. He was always representing a minority group that was dominated by a majority group of some sort, whether that be the Hungarian liberal state or the Czechoslovak liberal state or Nazi fascist Germany. He's always being dominated by a more powerful uh, hegemon, of course. That's the definition of hegemon. And um, uh, he tended to think it made more sense to work with these people than to fight them, especially when you didn't have a lot of resources to fight them with. And, uh, and so um, his attraction uh, to fascism um, is uh, – once once you contextualize it through this lifelong uh, habit of collaboration, then the ideological motives for collaboration, they start to come into question. And, and we have great examples like Tiso in – a few years before 38, he's calling Hitler the small man that must kneel before Rome. Right? He's he's uh, he, he's condemning totalitarianism again and again up until 1938. Uh, but then, you know, once you're into the fascist period, he's he's saying yes, we we seek this totality of the nation, and he, he declares a Slovak national socialism. Um, I'm sorry, no, his, uh, that was that was Tuka. Tuka comes back and becomes his prime minister because he gets out of jail. And it's a it's a long story. You'll have to go to the book for that. <laughs> Tuka's back. Anyway, uh, but uh, uh, one of the things that Tiso does is he's very good at adopting the language of his opponents. Uh, during interwar Czechoslovakia, he could sound very democratic at times. Um, he could sound like he was really accepting the principles of his secular opponents. Uh, a big debate on abortion, and uh, when he was minister of health, and he doesn't—he doesn't turn to scripture once. Uh, just five years earlier, when he's out, you know, campaigning for the people's uh, the People's Party, he's quoting scripture right and left, they're thrown in Latin, et cetera. But all he uses is secular arguments in that debate on abortion, um, and and we see him also adapt fascist, um, uh, fascist uh, rhetoric. Uh, for example, he gets himself appointed Vodza, which is the Slovak term for Fyra, uh leader. And uh, some of this is sincere. Tiso always was authoritarian. He was a sincere nationalist. Once he went over to nationalism, he thought one-party rule made the most sense. He uh, was no fan. Uh, he really wasn't much of a fan of, of multi-party democracy. He got very burned on the way multi-party democracy didn't work for him in Czechoslovakia. Some of it's sincere. Uh, some of it, though, is his way of outflanking um, uh, more radical uh, rivals, and also uh, neutralizing uh, German influence in Slovakia. And so you have to do a very careful reading of his statements. And there's periods where he's pushing back, where he's trying. You know, there's a, a famous speech where he says once that uh, he, he basically uh, basically implies that Nazi politics is gangsterism and that Slovaks have to really focus on catholic politics you know he's pushing for catholicism and uh, he, of course, gets his hand slapped in a very uh, big way uh, by uh, Nazi Germany following that episode. And after that, he's more willing to package himself as a fascist and show his support for uh, a Slovak national socialism. And uh, um, so he's always kind of, uh, again, he's adapting himself to these, but he's got these long term goals that he never loses. Goals like, you know, making sure that, uh, um, that education is infused with Catholicism. Um, making sure that the church uh, gets back some of its properties, et cetera, gets back some of its possessions that have been taken away in 1918. Uh, I'm babbling again, but <laughs> uh, so let me see. What was the original question? I think there was one more point I wanted to make here. This was uh, oh yeah, the consequences of. Can you, can you remind me what we were talking about?
1: <laughs> Tiso's collaboration and his his history of collaboration, as you called it, and how that played out in his relationship with Nazi Germany. Oh yeah. Okay. Uh, And you may have one more point, but uh, if not, then if so, you can give that, and if not, you can transition to, uh, of course, Tiso's role in the uh, deportation of Slovak Jews and the crushing of the Slovak uprising in 1944.
0: Well, I'll just make that one last point. It's a very ambivalent relationship where Tiso's trying to carve out as much independence as he can, but the the nature of collaboration, you start with a fair amount of legitimacy because you're... You're, uh, um, you're, you're, you're stabilizing things when collaboration starts, and it just goes downhill. And as it goes downhill, he has less and less maneuvering room all the time, and eventually you'll have an uprising against his state, and then he basically loses all maneuvering room. Um, so um, I guess that's that's what lifelong pattern of collaboration, how that contextualizes our understanding of this Nazi collaboration. Uh, okay, now in terms of the deportations, um, we've known for a long time that, that Tiso was heavily involved in uh, the deportations, but we tended to think it was after, um, uh, for the most part, um, for the most part, after the fact uh, that he had taken a passive role and that the deportations were driven forward by uh, two radicals in the regime, uh, Wojtek Tuka, who came back, resurrected uh, out of prison in 1938, uh, resurrected as, uh, becomes the prime minister of, of Czechoslovakia, I mean, I'm sorry, of Slovakia, independent Slovakia. And, um, uh, Alexander Mach, Chanyel Mach, uh, who was the minister of interior. These were the, the 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 biggest Germanophiles in the regime, and they also were the proteges of Nazi Germany. The Nazi Germany would intervene on their behalf periodically in Slovak domestic politics, which is a very tough thing for Tiso to uh, to uh, deal with. He he had to put up with uh, um, giving the radicals a fairly um, a loose chain. Uh, what I discovered in my um, research is that Tiso hadn't just kind of, you know, played dead beetle, as the Slovaks would say, and just let, you know, the radicals do whatever they did. And then when they said we're deporting Jews, he then kind of came on board and did things like sign the constitutional law that allowed them to deport the Jews, etc. Uh, what I discovered was um, a bit more, well, much more malicious behavior in that one of Tiso's lessons being anti-Semitic in 1918-1919 is that if you're radical anti-Semite, uh, within the spectrum of politics that really damages your legitimacy as a priest. And that was important for Tiso. Um, the the priest was the priesthood was part of the secret for uh, protecting the church. It was part of the sacrality of the church. You couldn't allow enemies to to damage, you know, to to, as he would say, to put stains on the immaculate reputation of, of the priesthood. And so after that experience in in 1918, 1919, when he was the most radical anti-Semitic journalist in Nitra, he was always very careful to play the moderate and push himself into the moderate position. And he got very skilled at positioning the radicals to push forward policies he did not want to take responsibility for, such as declaring war on the Soviet Union, uh, declaring war on the United States. He always positioned himself so that he could say, well – you know, the, the the radicals did it. It's a hot of events, which is Slovak for a done deed, you know, a fait accompli, a hot of um, so So uh, that was the case, too, with the – and my, my argument is that was the case, too, with the the uh, deportations and with the overall persecution of the Jews. Tiso uh, early on is a very active participant in in targeting Jews and expropriating them and uh, socially isolating them, et cetera. And uh, he's in a wonderful position in 1941 to regain control of Jewish policy. Um, he, there's, there's a constitutional uh, – uh, I'm not sure if it's constitutional. Law. It's a big law on the table that's going to give him veto power basically over all Jewish policy. And uh, there seems to be widespread consensus at the time that that's a good idea, that they're going to turn over uh, Jewish policy to the government, but Tisa would have veto power over it. And surprise, that clause disappears. within two weeks and suddenly tiso is able to say i have no control over the government they're they're doing this all on their own but he's at all the right places at the right time to know what's going on to be influencing uh policy he's even you know at the time when the decision to deport the jews is probably taken he's got the entire government in an isolated retreat uh and key decisions are made just days after that retreat end he's also Uh, making statements that suggest he's supporting the idea of purging um, Slovakia. Later statements where he says point blank to somebody, he says, it's my most sacred conviction. I must free the country of Jews as soon as possible. Um, And so I argue that he probably uh, gave a go ahead for the deportations, not just sanctioning them afterwards and making public speeches. Like he makes this famous speech where he says it was divine law for us to get rid of our pest, you know, to cast out the Jew. Uh, not just sanctioning them through laws, sanctioning them through statement after the fact. I argue that he probably played a role in initiating the deportations uh, for a variety of reasons, ranging from progress for the nation to his need during revolutionary time to purge the body politic of Jews.
1: Mm-hmm. And so to jump ahead uh, slightly and then a lot, uh, Tiso was executed in 1947, in large part uh, for his role as a Nazi collaborator, and that was, um, in many ways, how he has been viewed historically. Right. But there are also, as you talk about in the book, people who have viewed him as a martyr for the Slovak nation, mm-hmm. and that there have been. Moves to try and rehabilitate them, as you mentioned at the beginning of this interview. And I found the analysis of the fight over Tiso's memory and post communist Slovakia especially interesting. Mm-hmm. And can you explain how those attempts to rehabilitate and the resistance to re- rehabilitation mirrored the polarization of Slovak politics in the post communist period in this new? independent um, Slovakia?
0: Well, you we have to go back to Slovak National Uprising uh, because the Slovak National Uprising was a co-communist, uh, co-democratic-led revolt against the state and Tiso he helped the Germans to suppress it. And uh, he's basically tried by the errors of the Slovak National Uprising. And so one of his biggest crimes, uh, even even more so than German collaboration or uh, he's, he's not tried legally for crimes against humanity but basically he's tried for crimes against humanity in effect biggest crime is betraying the Slovak national uprising and and helping suppress it. This was a thing that the, the, virtually every uh, every officer involved in the trial had some sort of connection to the resistance that 's what happened in post war Europe the resistance tried the uh, the collaborators and um, it, the the trial is heavily uh, heavily manipulated by communists and it's also part of the, uh, of, the of their route to power is, is using the trial. And so during socialist Slovakia, the communist credentials of the Slovak national uprising were played up, and it became the high point of Slovak achievement. also became the justification for communist rule or one of the justification for communist rule in Slovakia because that's the closest thing they're going to get to a, a Marxist-Leninist revolution in Slovakia. And so in 1989, uh, one of the things that happens is the Slovak national uprising, there's a movement to discredit it. And now, of course, you need a different high point of Slovak, uh, of Slovak achievement, and that becomes the Slovak state and Tiso. This is being pushed by emigres that have been abroad, and they come back. People like uh, uh, Milan Štefánik from Italy, František Vanuk from Australia, and they come back with a very well worked out defense of Tiso, that Tiso is the uh, uh, the high point of, of uh, Slovak uh, accomplishment, and he's a victim of Czechs. Of, of Protestants and of of, um, of, of uh, uh, communists. All three of those, right? Those were all three kind of tied up into the Slovak National Uprising. And uh, there's a pretty weak defense of Slovak National Uprising in the first few years of this debate because, after all, it is associated with socialist rule. Um, but there is a pretty strong... Um, there's a pretty strong resistance to the idea of rehabilitating Tiso. It was never never a majority movement in Slovakia. It was always a, a French movement. It did get some high numbers uh, for a while there at the at the period of the dissolution of the state and there's this awful episode where you have these guys celebrating uh, Tiso on March fourteenth the day of Slovak independence and Václav Havel very amateurishly stumbles in – doesn't stumble in. He decides to walk into this um, demonstration, and demonstrators kick and spit on him, and they drive him away, pounding on his car, et cetera. Uh, Awful scenes like that. And there was a fair amount of support uh, for Tisa at the time, but even then it's not. It's really a minority who is pushing for his rehabilitation. Uh, But people – are convinced that historians have been lying to them <laughs> for the last two decades. They're, 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 it's, just, it's just understood. Historians have been lying to us. When are you going to open up the archives and tell us the truth about our nation? When are you going to print the truth about our nation? And so the immigrants, they have a lot of access to the media, a lot of access to universities. People listen to them uh, uh, you know with open minds would be the phrase they 'd use at the time because they 're filling in the blank spots of uh, of Slovak history, the miesti, the white places, which were the places in the newspaper that had been censored, and so they appeared just as white in the newspaper I, I translated as blank spots um, and so this, 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 this then gets tied into uh, Slovak politics and the fight about whether Slovakia stays within Czechoslovakia or not uh, gets tied into independence. And what happens is um, at a certain point, the nationalists who are trying to rehabilitate Tiso, they attack the Slovak national uprising too strongly. Uh, And they portray it in kind of the classic emigre uh, terms as uh, um, an act of treason against the state, against the nation. These were Czechs and, and communists and Protestants that were stabbing Slovakia in the heart. And there's a great image of uh, one of the books here where you got the bleeding heart of, of Slovakia. You got Nazi rifles and communist rifles firing into it. You know, very sophisticated uh, discourse. At any rate, um, when they do that, then there's uh, the Slovak Academy of Sciences. They mount a very Uh, A very determined defense of Slovak national uprising again as the high point of Slovak history and this is where communist split democratic leadership comes in very handy. During socialism you can portray it as a communist uprising. During democracy you can stress the democratic credentials the anti-fascist credentials and so there's been that ongoing fight within the historiography about what's the high point and of course the Slovak national uprising is coming out as the winner uh, over the last two decades, as as the the, the high the high achievement, the apex of of Slovak achievement, um, uh, but what happens in terms of the politics? Uh, kind of an irony, uh, because uh, you have a party called the uh, Movement for Democratic Slovakia, Hazadasa uh, in in the Slovak abbreviation, led by Vladimir Meciar, a populist uh, prime minister who is uh, the one, along with Václav Klaus, the prime minister of the Czech uh, Czechoslovakia. I'm sorry, the Czech Republic that splits Czechoslovakia in 1993, and Meciar um, would turn to uh, the Slovak National Party. The ultra nationalists as a junior partner, and one of their key platforms was to rehabilitate Tiso. They were the party that was most hung up on this. And and Maitre also within his party, he had people that were big on rehabilitating the state, rehabilitating uh, Tiso. Matur never liked Tiso. <laughs> you know, when when the rehabilitation started, he was condemning it along with everybody else. He had no fondness uh, for Tiso at all. <laughs> but what happens is because he's putting the, the Slovak National Party, in charge of things like the Ministry of Education, and they're starting to try to push through pro-Tiso books using EU funds to do it. Uh, this creates a huge scandal, and so uh, the the fight against Tiso's rehabilitation overlaps with the fight against majorism, uh, this sort of thuggish authoritarian politics that Vladimir Major had been uh, uh, pursuing in the 1990s, and it helps lead to the defeat of Major, uh, and then of course. As you go into a liberal government then under Mikolaj uh, Shirenda, uh the, the rehabilitation campaign is pushed to the wall, and they they start meeting in secret to celebrate Tiso's life, et cetera. Uh, they don't spend as much time in the press, <coughs> et cetera. Uh, but then once EU membership is settled – because that was the deal. You can't get in the EU if you're going to celebrate a guy like Tiso. It's not going to happen. You've got to focus on the memory of the Holocaust because that's kind of the the least uh, – uh, how do I put this um, – uh, that, that's the least common denominator for proving uh, commitment to human rights, commitment to democratic values in the EU. You've got to come clean on your record on the Holocaust. And Slovakia did a fairly good job uh, of that. Uh, but once they're in the EU, then the rehabilitation debate, it's revived a bit. Only now it's it's happening more on the field of Catholic publishing. It's portrayed much more as a Catholic issue, or at least it's being funded by – uh, catholic presses much more than was the case before um so it, it's come back a little bit but overall um i i i think the the rehabilitation it's, it's weird it, it's weird because there's like uh, milan s Jurica, he wrote a biography of Tiso in 2006 i believe um it's gone through four editions <laughs> four editions so there are people reading this stuff and 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 Jurica, he actually makes a plea for Tiso's beatification uh uh, at the end, let's see. Beat, no, wait, wait, wait. No, beatification. The one before beatification. Canonization is saying it's beatification is the one before. Yeah, he's making he's making a plea for beatification. Uh, and it's four editions. Uh, people are reading it. But um, I don't see when I look at the the public opinion polls on how popular he is. I, I don't see a, a big a big turnaround. It's it's you're still talking like five percent of the population. that's seasoned as entirely. Um, again, I should get that figure right since it's going to be broadcast. Let me see if I can get it out of my book real quickly. Um, here we go. Uh, t- Two thousand and five, five uh, percent looked at him very favorably. Uh, that's that's not that's not a big number. Uh, there's a lot more though. There's there's a lot of people that just see him ambiguously.
1: You know, he's, right. uh, they're
0: not quite sure what to make of him.
1: Well, in looking at Tiso's life overall, I felt that you made a compelling argument that his life can be understood as an expression of three what you call theologies, uh, Catholicism, nationalism, and human rights. So in looking at Tiso and what we learn from uh, this biography, what do you mean by these three theologies and how they play out in his life?
0: Well, um, it's it's interesting. I think this goes back to your question about how does modernity fit into all this uh, along with Catholicism. You know, when was a kid, um he's, um he's engaged in this sort of Catholic renaissance, neo-Thomas re- renaissance, right, where they're going to you know, recapture the public sphere and, and uh, re-Catholicize society. And um, you know, when he thinks about what is morality, he's thinking about this kind of classic Catholic morality where uh, man starts in union with God and then he falls into sin. And then he does this kind of circular path back to God where he, he reconnects with God through communion with Christ. That 's uh, you know and, and you, you've got these systems that are pushing you towards God, you know uh, uh was it uh, good habits push you toward God, bad habits vices push you away from God, etc, and God also intervenes, so you take this circular journey and that that was Tiso 's moral system uh when he was young, and uh, then in nineteen eighteen a little bit let 's make it a little bit before we, we won 't deny him his uh, um, awakening nationalism in the years before World War one uh, he gets introduced to another um, moral system, which is about progress, where you, rather than this kind of circular journey from God and back to God, you break it, and rather than a circle, you lay it out in a straight line, and uh, you still have this movement toward good. That's called progress. Uh, but uh, what you're moving toward now is not God, but the beautiful tomorrow. And, you know, salvation is not through you know, communion with Christ, but salvation is with through communion with the collective. And the collective can be the nation, class, uh, the citizenry, you name it. But you're, you're still having this this movement forward to the good, which is the beautiful tomorrow for the nation, etc. And th- that's what Tiso's morality increasingly becomes. In um, the, the interwar years, for example, he's very big on things like electrification. He wants progress for the Slovak nation. He wants the Slovak culture to flower. He wants to build canals and, and dams and, and, you know, like Lenin, right? Bolshevism equals electrification plus Soviet power. <laughs> you can do that with Tiso, right? Electrification plus Ludak power. That's that's uh, beautiful progress. And uh, over the course <clears throat> of his life, There's a really interesting moment that happens where he starts getting confused about what is the ultimate aim of what he would call his exile on Earth. Uh, When he was younger, he had no doubt it was God. You were moving toward God. But as he gets more and more involved in secular politics and nationalist politics, the nation starts to eclipse God as the the final object of, of his exile on Earth. And it's very, very apparent in an article that he wrote. Uh, at the very end of his his rule in Slovakia, where the the Ludak slogan was for God and for nation. And uh, it was in their their rhetoric all the time. And the last, he writes this very short little two-page article which has the phrase state and nation. Uh, Something like 23 times or something like that. Never says God and nation the whole way through it. You can see that sort of secularization that's happening to him. Then his life ends on a theology that's really based on On human rights, whereas you're still kind of a linear progression rather than a circle. And you're still moving in this direction, the same direction as you were under progress. But rather than focused on the beautiful tomorrow, you're moving away from the horrific past. You know, you're making progress if you're not repeating the Holocaust. And rather than salvation being something that's achieved through communing with the collective, you you, what your focus is now on salvaging individual dignity from the anonymity of mass death. For example, uh, the Vietnam War Memorial is a great example. Every single name listed. Or there's a, a Holocaust Memorial in Budapest where it's a tree, and each leaf of the tree has the name of a victim on it. You're salvaging individual. And it's very common. Lots and lots of lists of victims as, as part of, of a Holocaust scholarship in the uh, in postmodern period. Very important to recognize individuals. And so the nation, no, it's no longer this kind of image of the nation, that dominates now, you know, a kind of statue that that, uh, that symbolizes Hungary or Slovakia or whatever. Now it's it's about individuals and what they've suffered. And the interesting thing about Tiso is, you know, those three theologies they kind of they kind of do an arc about Western morality overall because you know the the the, the sort of God-centered theology was the most influential one for determining what was good prior to modernity and modernity to progress really takes over and then in postmodernity it becomes much more centered on human rights on, on things like the holocaust as the sacred center of european memory of of western memory and that's all compressed in tiso's life into just 60 years it's kind of a fascinating a journey and the problems of interpreting Tiso inevitably come back to the problems of determining which one of the standards, God, progress, or Holocaust, is most important for interpreting him. And they turn into proxy conflicts about what should be the basis of good, uh, as much as they are about who was Yosef Tiso and what did he do. And so um, and this is this is all a roundabout way That's that's the, the, the theology thing because I think there's no way to ever write a book about Joseph Tiso and not engage how he's understood morally uh, that just doesn't make any sense but I think it's also very important to understand him as a modern actor he was he was engaged in all sorts of modern uh, developments like mass politics, uh, uh, nationalism, genocide also uh, in many ways a modern uh, development, state building, um, uh, uh, mass press, etc. You know, it kind of goes on and on and on. And in some cases, he's actually pushing his secular uh, opponents to get more serious about these modern developments. Uh, one of the classic examples is that uh, Catholic Catholic priests were better at democratic politics than liberals because they didn't have to build a party. They had a parish structure. They could they could they could mobilize the population better. And they were they were they were more inclined to engage women in, in politics because women were more likely to be Catholic. And and so you, here you see rather than this kind of image of the church as something it has to adapt to and conform to modernity, it gets dragged kicking and screaming into the modern age. Here we see Catholic politicians Forcing liberals to adapt to mass democracy and forcing liberals to deal with the idea of women in politics. And so that that was one of the big themes of the book is that you you don't want to denaturalize Catholics from progress, from modernity. They're, They're on that agenda, too, in very serious ways.
1: Well, I think that you did a good job of of articulating that in the interview and especially in the book, of course, with much more detail. And I I enjoyed reading the book. And as we close up now, I'd like to know what you're working on these days.
0: Uh, Well, right now I'm working on, uh, if I'm honest, I'm working on grading my Blue Book exams. Uh, But the big project uh, I'm I'm trying to get uh, moving is a history of modern expropriation uh, running from – it, it'll start with uh, – it, it's, it's designed as a, a trip down the Danube from Josephus Vienna to uh, Stalinist Budapest. And it, the idea is that you go through all the different kinds of – all the different periods of modern expropriation, all the different kinds of governments that did it, all the different target groups running from Jesuits to Jews, etc., to class national enemies, etc., And it argues that there is a um, – that the, the problem with the historiography at present is that it tends to treat expropriation episodically. And I'm arguing that modern expropriation has an internal logic that makes it cohesive. And so I'm going to take this little trip down the Danube, and I'll, I'll basically look at a, a scene of uh, an episode of expropriation and jump ahead 20 years to another one as I go further down the river. And expropriation is everything from emancipation of serfs uh, to, uh, of course, the uh, expropriation of the Jews, uh, expropriation of the Catholic clergy, et cetera, a whole series of different kinds of, of uh, expropriation of, of nobles. And, uh, and so it, it's trying to look at um, modern expropriation as a cohesive uh, process uh, that loses it, – it's always kind of driven by the idea that expropriation uh, raises up the people and it, it, it puts the people's property in their hands. And there's a moment when it finally reaches kind of a radical uh, – these radical expressions of expropriation like the Holocaust or like uh, the Bolshevik uh, project to do away with private property. And then there's a transformation in how expropriation is understood, and so now it's understood as a crime against humanity, uh, something that uh, diminishes uh, the, the complexity and the richness of, of culture, etc. And, and the, the, the debate then turns into something called restitution. Uh, and, and so there's, there's, if, you, if you take like a Google Ngram viewer, you know, which uh, it tells you how many times a word appears in, in Google Books uh, per year, and you type in something like expropriation, it doesn't always work this way depending on which group you have. But you get a bell curve uh, basically from 1789 up to 1960 where it really starts to drop out discussion about expropriation. And uh, I, I think there's a, a radicalizing impulse in modern expropriation that then gets overwhelmed once it hits its full radical Uh, potential.
1: Wow. That (laughs) sounds like a very interesting project. And hopefully we'll be interviewing you in a few years (laughs) about a new book on that topic. I hope so. Uh, But in the meantime, thanks to our listeners for joining us today. And we look forward to next month's conversation about a new book in East European Studies.